Well, now we'll turn to the scriptures and like I said, get rooted in who we are and what we're about. If you got first Peter chapter two, verse four to 10, please um, turn to that. We're going to just read this scripture together and start right in uh, God's word today. And, uh, you know, last week we were talking and, and I highlighted so much how Jesus is the word of God and he is, he is, he is above the pages, but we look to this word. We look to God's word. We look to the scriptures for guidance, for truth. We believe God speaks to us through it. And so we see the word of God officially, Jesus, the words of God in the scriptures he's given us, and we firmly plant our lives in that. And we're going to read this together. So we're in First Peter. If you're just catching up with us, you're just here for the first time, we've been walking through this New Testament letter and learning from it, and I really pray that you get something beautiful from it today as we read. So let's read. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God, And precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become a, the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now, but now you have received mercy. Man, God's word's good. Isn't that awesome? I love it. Who's excited to jump into the scriptures today? I haven't said that in a while, so we can do that. Okay, let me tell you a story um, about TVs. I'm going to tell you the, the TV situation in the Manifold home for the last 20 years, okay? And so, so not how we watch TV or what we watch, but I have this backstory. In the last 20 years, I've purchased two TVs. Purchased one 20 years ago. It was a 20... I think it was a 27-inch Toshiba. I think it looked like this. Um, it was like... Middle, middle, bottom of the line, kind of like at the time, you know? And uh, I, I think I spent $600 back then at Central Audio in Lachine. It might even still be there. And that was our first TV, and we kind of used that and hovered around that. In fact, we only gave it up to the dump five years ago. Crazy, eh? And so uh, that was our first TV. And then uh, several years ago, I think six or seven years ago, uh, I, I bought my wife um, a, a TV as well. It was a little bit bigger, and uh, it was like a door crasher TV. You know, the ones you can just get when you jump in the door on a sale or something like that. So I picked that up uh, for her. And two years after we bought that, we threw out the old Toshiba. And so I promised my kids. What happened was when we threw out the old Toshiba, we brought this other TV that we had bought for my wife. We said, sorry, honey, it's not going to be only for you. But it wasn't really only for, but she was, we brought it downstairs. We put it, we hung it up. And our kids like, that's nice, dad. Like all my friends have these big TVs and here's this little small thing on the screen. And I said, you know what, guys, in a, in a year or so, we're going to, you know, we'll just save some money and we'll buy a TV. One year passed and two years passed and three years passed and Four years passed, and we have this TV on the wall. And I said, you know what, guys? This, see, before the end of 2017, 
we are going to get a TV. And they laughed at me. In fact, they were at my uncle's house a couple of weeks ago, and they're telling my uncle, and my uncle's a TV guy. He loves TVs. And he's like, hey, our dad said he's going to buy a TV. He's like, David's never going to buy a TV. That's what he told the kids. So they came home very disappointed. But, but recently, they came home one evening, and this new TV was on the wall. And they were freaking out. They didn't believe that it could happen. Their hope, their hope was fulfilled. Finally, Three, four years later, they come and it's like, this is real. This really happened. You weren't lying to us. And so, so finally, this hope that was promised, this hope gets fulfilled. I know it's only a TV, but it was a big deal for the wait. And have you ever waited for something so long? You've hoped for it, or maybe some people have promised it to you, and it just doesn't materialize. You wait and wait and wait, and then there's little kind of like hints or teasing, like it'll happen, or I'll do this, or we'll fix this, but you just keep waiting, and you're hoping. And there's a hope promised, but it's never a hope fulfilled. Maybe it's a job. Uh, maybe it's a home selling. You know, just the Harders recently. By the way, Sylvia and Andy Harder sold their home. Woohoo! So... They've been waiting. Now, we laugh, uh, we, 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 we applaud, and we also weep because we know that they're officially going to be moving out west. But, man, Andy was looking for work for a year. And then he got work, and, they were, and they, it took almost a year to sell their house. That's this hope, promise, but not fulfilled. Recently, it came into fulfillment. Have you ever waited a relationship or a break in life or maybe waiting for someone to confess something to you or maybe for reconciliation, and it... It's just a promise, but not fulfilled. As Peter writes to these early Christ followers, he's trying to establish their faith in Jesus. In fact, many uh, believe that First Peter was often used as a way to, to prepare these early Christians to be baptized, and or even in their baptism, just to keep growing them in their faith. And here's Peter trying to establish them in this faith. And he's painting this big picture for them in these few verses that we read. What is God going to do with you? What is God going to do with you now that you have come to know him in Jesus Christ? And he tells them in verse 4 and 5, he says, you are being built into a spiritual house. Now, imagine these people who feel like exiles being told, you're going to be built into something beautiful, this spiritual house being used by God. God gives them this purpose that they will, they, they're being built into something for his purposes. Now you say, like, what, is this, what would that mean? What do these two words, spiritual house, put together mean? Well, the first word, spiritual, we know what it means for us. But for them in that moment, I want you to think about what Peter just told them. He said, you've come to the living stone, not a dead physical stone, a living stone, Jesus. And you, he calls them living stones, people that have been energized by the, by the presence of God in their hearts because they've come to faith in Jesus. You living stones are going to be built into a spiritual house. The idea of stone for the Old Testament, as Peter is going to quote later in his background as a Jew, a stone was often something that was was almost relatable to the temple. As the Jews built the temple, that was a place where God hung out, where God dwelt, where, where their, their faith practices were executed and happened in that moment. And so a stone for them, it was literally, they, they organized their life around the temple. So the idea of a stone was like, this is where God works. In fact, when you know, Jacob or Moses or one of these characters in the Old Testament, when something amazing would happen that God did, they would often take some stones, gather them, and erect some kind of um, you know, monument or something, not to worship it. It wasn't an idol. They were saying, God did something here. 
God did something here, and we're going to remember it. And whoever walks by this place will know that God did something here. So the idea of a stone for the Jews, and even in Peter's mind, is this is how people connected to God. The temple, these moments where God was at work and they left a memory of it. This is how people connected to God. But when Jesus showed up, the stones weren't just stones. Jesus is called the living stone, and we are called living stones because God fills us with his presence. And Jesus said, I'm the way. In other words, you don't need to go to the temple to get to God. You come through me. You don't need to build some memory of what God did. I'm going to be active all the time. And so Jesus says, I'm the way. In fact, Jesus said, when you believe in me, it's going to be like rivers of living water will flow in you and through you. In other words, I am your source, your connection to God the Father, not the temple. And that's huge. In fact, Paul even calls us a temple of the Holy Spirit, that God would dwell us and work in us and live in us. And the word house, spiritual house, is is this connection to Israel. Often, what was Israel called? The house of Israel. Or David's family, the house of David. It was connected to a people. And that word house had a lot of deep Jewish connections to God's people, to God's community, to God's family. And so the temple was a way to connect to God. The house was to say, you are God's people. Connect to God, people of God. And then Peter says, Peter says, God is building you. Oops, God is building you into a spiritual house, a people where God's presence is active being built into this spiritual house, a people where God's presence is possible. And Jesus made it possible. What does Peter say? As you come to him, the living stone, you also living stones, right, are being built into a spiritual house. And later he says, a holy priesthood. And he says, how? Through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. So this spiritual house is this sense that you now have a relationship with God and you are now representatives of God. That's really huge at this moment. But Israel, I want you to just just step back for a second. Israel was waiting for something like this all along. They were waiting for this, that God would come and be active and fulfill his promises because they leaned on things like the temple. They were you know, waiting for a temple. And then when, when the temple was later destroyed in 70 AD, it crushed them. But they were always looking forward to the fulfillment of what the temple would be. Israel was waiting for something like this. And that's what Advent is. Advent is anticipation. That's what the word means. It's anticipating something. It's this hope for God to show up and act. And I love this season. And we had, that was involved in some of the prayers we said this morning that were on the screen. This season of expecting God to do something. When we enter this season, don't just look for sales and new bulbs and stuff like that. When you enter this season, today's the beginning of Advent, let's enter this day and the next four or five weeks with an anticipation that God is at work, that God's doing something. Just like Israel was longing and hoping for this hope to be fulfilled, we remember that hope and we see it fulfilled in Jesus, but we look forward, like actually Simon reminded us, we know our future. It's, it's, it's eternity. It's, it's restoration. Now, God promised that this would happen. And I want us to just kind of use this theme as a little connection to Advent. Because in, 
Peter quotes Isaiah chapter 28, and it's in, it's in verse 6 actually um, over here. Look, Peter ends up going back to the Old Testament to help these people understand what's going on here. What are we experiencing? Did God really bring all this about? And he quotes Isaiah where, he says, where Isaiah says, as if God is speaking this word, see, I lay a stone in Zion. This was the place where the Jews revered. A chosen and precious cornerstone. Then the language changes. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. The word stone in Hebrew, you just add one uh, pronunciation at the beginning, and it's the same word as the word son. Eben is stone and ben is son. This kind of play on words that the stone that God was going to lay down was actually his very own son that would be the foundation of all God's purposes, all God's project to restore humanity's brokenness. Have you ever been in a building project and you're like, you've, you've seen, you know that you've got to start this project? Any project, whether it's a real physical building or another project, it needs an anchor point. It needs something to tell it where it's going to go. It needs something to give it guidance, to give it a framework, to say this is going to go up this high and our foundation has to be this deep. And so the foundation, the starting point, always dictates what the rest of the building is going to look like. But even if you have another kind of project, it's that idea that the project always needs a framework, a foundation, a starting point, something that it aligns itself with. And in ancient times, the cornerstone would often be that key rock that gave the building the strength it needed. And if you didn't find that key cornerstone rock, you could not build what you wanted to build. But here's a question. Have you ever missed the most important piece in a project? Have you ever been sitting around a table at work? Maybe there's four or five colleagues at work and you have, you have this project before you and you're like, okay guys, let's, everybody, let's kind of throw some ideas on the table and all these ideas are on the table and you're like, that's good. Oh, that's pretty creative. That's fun. This looks cool. That's not going to work. That's quirky. Uh, whatever. Right? So you see all these, all these ideas and everybody is like, okay, we got ideas. But then you're looking around the table and you're like, but nothing drives it. Nothing drives a project. These are all nice ideas. They're maybe pieces of the project, but nothing drives the project. We need something to drive the project. I'm a words person. I write a lot and, and speak and different things. And if you create stuff with words, sometimes you look at the screen or your paper or your notes and, or a big whiteboard, and I'm like, it's a lot of words, but it says nothing. <laughs> ever, ever feel like that? You're like... I have just wrote a thousand words, but I have said nothing. There's no point to this thing. I need a, I need a main point. I need a main idea. Maybe there's been times you've gone to the back, your backyard, if you have a backyard and you have a shed maybe, and there's a whole bunch of tools and you've got to do this job and you, you go, I'm going to go get a tool in my shed. And there's like 15 tools, but none of them are the right tools. Oh, okay, I'm stuck. I can't, I can't fulfill the project. The stone, the cornerstone, was the piece of the puzzle to bring the project together. But sometimes we even miss it, even if it's there. Have you ever done puzzles, like thousand-piece puzzles? And you know, like, the piece is somewhere there. And you're, like, scrambling, and you looked at, like, 70 pieces now, and you cannot find the color and line that matches, and you're just going to pull your hair out. And somebody comes up behind you as you're kind of sitting at the table, they're like... They pick up this piece. You're like, is this the one you're looking for? You're like, how the heck did you, how did you do that? How did you find that piece? And it's interesting because sometimes we're, we're just looking at this 
And somebody comes from behind us and objectively kind of sees something we didn't see, grabs that piece and says, here, this is what you're looking for. This is this cornerstone piece that Peter is speaking about as he goes back into the Old Testament to explain to them and to us. Israel had this hope, and the key piece showed up and was going to show up, and for Peter, in his day, it did show up, but he says, you know, some people missed it. Some people didn't see the piece. Some people missed the cornerstone. In fact, Peter says, some people will reject the cornerstone. Some people will actually scorn the stone. Sometimes we miss it. Some people reject it. Some people scorn the stone, the piece. But regardless... God has a perfect stone for the project and only that stone will make the building work. And that's Jesus. That's Jesus. There's this article this week uh, that popped up in my newsfeed and it was uh, apparently like these people who love words and want to save the English language um, from becoming dumb or something. They're like, they've chosen five, 25 words that they feel should not be let go. Because I think every couple of years, there's some words that get joined, like kind of like added onto our English language, and some words are like, we never use this anymore. And so some people got together, some smart people, smarter than me, and like, they chose these 25 words. I won't even read them to you because you've never used them in, in a sentence, I'm pretty sure. But one word jumped out to me, and it was this word, you catastrophe. You catastrophe is the word that jumped out at me. And why it jumped out at me is because it has roots. It was J.R.R. Tolkien, the guy who wrote The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, who actually coined this word. It means a sudden and favorable resolution of events in a story. It means a sudden and favorable resolution of events in a story. In other words, a happy ending. A happy ending. That's basically what it means. In the moment, it can seem awful. In the moment, it can seem awful, but something beautiful comes out of it. J.R. Tolkien coined this word, and he actually was quoted saying that he believes the gospel of Jesus, the message of Jesus, is a catastrophe. In other words, it's a happy tragedy. In, in, in other words, just like maybe this stone is rejected, or Jesus' trials and temptations and struggles and even death, but in the end, it creates a sudden new hope that didn't exist before. And he says the reason why is it satisfies the heart's deepest, deepest yearnings. It satisfies the heart's deepest yearnings. So Peter quotes Psalm 118 in verse 7 and 8. The stone the builders rejected. That's the tragedy. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Has become the peace. They re- what they rejected, what tragedy happened, became the cornerstone. So even this surprising turn of events, even tragic in rejection, but it changes the trajectory of a life, of a nation, of history itself. And Peter says in verse 7, Now, to you who believe, this stone has become precious. Because these people have come to understand who Jesus is. And what this stone represents. And look at the outcome in verse 9 and 10. As we read this, that these people, they've they've been called out. And anyone who's come to Jesus, called out, out of darkness into this wonderful light. That once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. That once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
This is the outcome of, of this, this turn of events. That these people, this rejected cornerstone became for them precious because they saw its worth, they saw its value, they understood who Jesus was and they put their faith in him and something changed. They went from darkness to light, from being disconnected to connected, from never experiencing mercy to now knowing mercy because of the cornerstone. The hope was, that was promised was fulfilled. It was fulfilled in their life. Now notice Peter's labels for them. No one's ever called you this before, I'm sure, but Peter calls us this. And he calls these Christ followers these different... That's a cool sound. Um, the, and so, this one. Look at these words. You can find them in, in verse 9 and 10. He calls them chosen people. He calls them a royal priesthood. He calls them a holy nation. He says, now you are... These things. He calls them God's, I love this one, God's special possession. He calls them holy priesthood in verse 5, and he calls them a spiritual house, like we've already heard. In other words, what God started in Israel gets fulfilled in Jesus and now includes those who put their faith in Jesus. This is Israel language. Only Israel was called these words. But Peter's saying, You are chosen and royal and holy and special. You are a people where God's presence dwells. And the beauty of this is you are now included in God's plans. Isn't that amazing? Now, just for a second, you're, we're not them. But remember what they're called in chapter 1? Hey, exiles. Hey, strangers. Hey, foreigners. That's what they felt like. Even before they came to Christ, they were probably marginalized in their culture. And as they embraced Christ, the rub of marginalization got even worse. And Peter recognizes they feel like exiles, strangers, foreigners. But then what? look at the words he says. You're chosen. You're special. You're holy. You're royal. You're a holy priesthood. You're priests. I mean, imagine what they were thinking. We're, what do you mean we're priests? What does that mean? I thought only certain people were priests. Peter says, no, we're all priests in God's kingdom. We all are part of God's mission and represent God to one another. Why are they included? God loves everybody. God will welcome anybody. But they're included, and Peter addresses them this way because they came to him, the living stone, because they embraced Christ, the cornerstone, because they realized the value and purpose and significance of Jesus. And the hope promised in God's plan at this, this is beautiful. This, that becomes their hope. And the hope fulfilled in God's plan in Jesus, that becomes their fulfillment. And all the promises that God speaks about and, and, and gives us, all of a sudden becomes their promises. And the satisfaction that someone like Tolkien talks about, the, the satisfying the deepest yearnings of our heart, that becomes true for them. It's a hope promised and a hope fulfilled in them. I'm going to ask the team to come up so we can just end it in, in a, some time of reflection on this. But let me ask you this question as we close. And it's for anybody here, regardless of where you are, on your, where you are in your spiritual journey. Um, maybe if you've been following Christ for years, or maybe you're here today and you're still questioning Christianity, or you're just exploring. That's okay. But why is Christianity so unique when, just out of this text? And why, and this is the question I get, I'm thinking about, why does Christianity enable such a genuine joy in the midst of some of the darkest places in the world? Why is it that some people, uh, last week we heard about uh, a Muslim man in northern Iraq, and I was talking with a, f- a friend this, this week, and they were telling me about a young 
uh, a young Assyrian um, young adult in his early 20s who, who become, becomes a Christian and, and wants to hang out in prison longer to share Jesus with people. Why does Christianity, why does it somehow build up a genuine joy in some of the darkest times? Why is it that there's Christ followers that can endure uh, pain and suffering at times and still in the middle of that still somehow know that there's a joy and a hope that's beyond even their situation? Why is Christianity unique? And I think as we look at just this text of First Peter, and I want to just encourage us in this way, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been or where you've come from, you can belong in Christ. Peter says, you're part of a new family now. No matter who you are, where you come from, what you've been through, you can belong to this new family in Jesus Christ, right? Once you were not a people, Peter says, now you are a people. Isn't isn't the world longing for that kind of belonging, sense of connection? Peter says, you're a new family now. I love I just I pray we've only seen little pieces of this even in our church, and I pray that we could come to see the fruit of what it means to be a new community, a new family in Jesus Christ. And also, no matter what you where you've come from, you can fit into God's plan. You can fit into God's purposes. Here are these people listening to this, and Peter saying all this stuff that's happened. Look how you fit in. You're part of this. You can fit into God's new purpose. And look what he says. Now your calling is to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. What does that mean? To tell of God's deeds. To tell, to tell people who he is and what he's about. And then no matter where we've come from, you can represent God to the world. That is crazy. That these people and us would say, you're all priests? Now, I don't mean the religious sense of I have a robe and I, I create certain things and I follow some rituals. The idea of a priest, the basic idea of a priest is that a priest represents God to people. That a priest has a connection to God and a priest represents God to people around him or them or her. And, and the idea is we are also now priests. We all have this opportunity to one, be connected to God, but two, we represent God to people. We represent God to the world around us. That is amazing. That's when, what, what it means that God is building us into this spiritual house. A people where God is present. And if you've come to him, you are part of that hope, that promise, that fulfillment. And if you haven't come to him, I'll just say this, you can. You are welcome to embrace Christ, to find that hope. And that hope will be your hope. That is for you. Um, And so as we we jump into this Advent season, I encourage you, we have an Advent reading um, on our website and uh, in our e-newsletter this week to help you just get rooted in some of these themes for the next few weeks. The next few Sundays we're here, we're going to be we're going to be, I just encourage you, make gathering a priority over the next few weeks to draw closer to God and to each other. And I want to invite you as well to invite other people to experience this, right? If, you're, if we are all priests, we are connected to God and we represent God to others. So I'm going to ask you to stand as we just take a moment and pray. And... Um, 
we have a few more minutes. We're just going to pray simply and ask the Lord to lead us and guide us. And we're going to just enter um, five or so minutes of worship. And in the middle of that worship time, I'm going to really invite you to pray. I'm going to invite you to pray. I'm going to invite you to pray and to be able to come to the Lord and be thankful. Um, Come to the Lord and pursue Him. Come to the Lord and maybe if you have come to Him, Jesus, in this moment to worship Him, to engage with Him, to seek Him. If you are on that cusp of coming to Christ to take these next few moments and, and, and get closer to Him, to call out to Him in prayer. In that prayer time, we're going to maybe surrender this next season of our church to the Lord. But as we do that, we, we want to just root ourselves in this one truth, the cornerstone, Jesus. And Jesus gives life. Jesus gives peace. Jesus gives hope. Jesus is the cornerstone. Let's sing this together. Jesus, Father, we come to you through Christ. We're so grateful that as we come to him, the living stone, we, living stones, energized by your spirit and your grace, you are building us into a spiritual house. Your living and local presence. We can know you. We can represent you. God, thank you that you call us chosen, and royal, and precious, and holy, and priestly. And it's through Christ. And we affirm our faith in Christ, our cornerstone. And we thank you for the hope that was promised and the hope that was fulfilled in your son, Jesus. Thank you that it is now our hope, now our promise, now our fulfillment. And may we live this out, God, in your grace and your mercy, because now we are a people with mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.